Hi, and welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It doesn't take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. So, Mark, last episode, you promised a review of your promotion dinner. Yeah. Does it does it count as a promotion yet? It's it's still in <laughs> purgatory, right? Well, you've gotten your promotion. But nobody knows still. My yeah. boss still has not told anyone. <laughs> Someone would know if they actually listened to our podcast at Morningstar, but yeah. that's too much to ask for. So. Exactly. Exactly. No, it was, it was a lovely night. So thank you. So Shani took me out to dinner. So we went to Londres. So it opened that week, right? It did. Yeah. It was named after where Frida Kahlo used to live. It was her address. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, this new sort of, I don't know, I call it more Mexican-inspired mm-hmm. restaurant. And we showed up, and we did get there on the early side, but- Because <laughs> I eat at five o'clock. Well, so. exactly, because you were like a 90-year-old. <laughs> and yeah, we we showed up, and we were the only two people in there, except for the photographers. Mm-hmm. And so we had a drink at the bar, and then they made us move, because the <laughs> photographers needed to take pictures of the bar. Mm. But it was very nice. I had I'm a very glad, good time. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And then we went to Grain afterwards. Mm-hmm. Which is a very nice bar. Yeah. They have great strawberry ice cream. So. Yes. Shani told the story about how when she was in uni, she used to go there and she'd sit in the corner and one of her good mates was a waitress there, a bartender mm-hmm. or something. And you said, did not bring you free stuff. But, no, but I just know. ate strawberry ice cream. Yeah. It's and- very sophisticated. <laughs> Anyway, should we um, should we move on? Yeah, okay. Yeah, let's do this. <laughs> um, today we're going to be releasing two episodes, both on passive ETFs. We did say that we weren't going to do any more two parters, but this topic is so broad and varied, and we did want to give you enough information to fully understand the topic, and then use that understanding when making investment decisions. So this is the first part, and we're going to go through what a passive index is, and then deconstruct it. We want you to understand how you know the bones of the investment are good when you're investing. Yeah. But just, just I know you said this, but to reiterate, we're going to release two in one day. Yeah. So people can listen to- Both. Hopefully or, both. Yeah. Either or both. But the second part, the other one that we'll record right after this and also release, we're putting Will really you know, through the ringer this week, <laughs> is how to actually pick a passive ETF. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's the two episodes. All right. So let's get into it. So why are we talking about passive ETFs in particular, Mark? Yeah, well, we think this is a particularly relevant topic because we keep seeing their continuing dominance in the market. So passive ETFs are pulling investor funds in from every direction. And last year, the largest net ETF inflows went to a passive ETF, the Vanguard Australian Shares ETF, with the ticker symbol VAS. And when we look at the top five, four out of the five are passive. And the three and five year picture is not that different. And we're just seeing these top ETFs dominating all of the passive indexes. So that's a point that we made, I think, in a previous webinar that we've reached a point where 50% of all funds invested in equities globally are passively managed. Yeah, there's no doubt that investors have become quite disillusioned with the funds management industry. We're seeing a lot of fund managers taking 1% to 2% per annum of an investor's balance and in a lot of cases underperforming the broader market. So a lot of investors are turning to passive investments and especially passive ETFs because they're pretty easy to access. And passive vehicles gained popularity partly due to this narrative. And it was a narrative that Vanguard and their legendary founder, John Bogle, pushed. 
And that was that active investing doesn't work given the fee levels and the propensity of a manager to underperform the market. And this narrative has really taken over. And we've seen this influx of funds into the passive space. And one of the problems is now, quote unquote, passive investing is being used in all sorts of ways that don't apply to that original premise. So let's go back to that original premise. We'll just go through that for a bit before diving in a little deeper. So Shani, what is passive investing? Well, John Bogle said that the average investor would find it difficult or impossible to beat the market over time, especially when taking higher expenses into account. So Bogle argued that if you can't beat the market, the best thing to do was simply own the market in as cheap of a way as possible, which means minimizing turnover, trading costs, and management fees. Yeah. So once Bogle started Vanguard, he came up with their first index fund in 1976, which incidentally is older than me. So remember that, (laughs) Shani. And it was called the First Index Investment Trust, and it's now known as the Vanguard 500 Index Fund. So Bogle ran Vanguard until his retirement in 1999. And there was some contention after he retired because he did not like his successor's decision to expand into ETFs. So Bogle did not like ETFs because even though he believed that buy, buy and hold investors could utilize them, he thought they could be too narrowly specialized and worried that anything that could be day traded would be day traded, which of course would reduce investor returns. In fact, Vogel called people who invested in ETS fruitcakes, nutcases, and the lunatic fringe. Yeah, which I've been, I've been called worse than that. <laughs> I've called you worse today, Mark. Yes, yes, you have. Shani's <laughs> been very mean to me today. But Vogel dedicated a chapter in his book, and the book was titled Stay the Course, The Story of Vanguard and the Index Revolution. So he dedicated a chapter to ETFs, and while he was not thrilled with them, he concluded that ultimately he could support them as long as they are broad-based and not used for speculation. And what we're seeing now is that there are all these different types of passive products that are just not being applied in this way or marketed in this way. And ultimately, what we're seeing is that a lot of investors are taking very active bets with very narrowly focused passive products. Yeah, and some of these passive products aren't passive at all. So they're products that are being marketed as passive because they have constraints and selection criteria built in, but ultimately they just don't fit into this original narrative of owning the market. So we've seen this expansion of passive products. For example, we've seen Mark's favorite thematic ETFs, which in theory track an index but doesn't really count as passive. When we look at ETFs in Australia, there are currently 287 of them. 205 of them are classified as passive. But are they actually passive or are they trading much like those in the thematic space? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of funds enter the market, which is obviously why we're at 287. And what we're seeing is this transformation of what passive investing means. So Bogle's claim of low cost, broad access to markets has been pushed aside for many ETFs. They're just choosing to represent just slivers of the market, making active calls about what they're investing in. And that is not the philosophy that passive investing was built on. And ultimately, it means that you're not going to get the same result. Yeah. For example, even if we look at something like the NASDAQ 100, is that truly representative of the market? Is it broad or is it extremely concentrated in the tech sector and in the top few stocks? Or even the Dow Jones Industrial Average Index? We'll speak a little bit more about this later on, but there's literally a board that sits there and chooses what's in the index. It's incredibly hard to distinguish that from active investing. So what we're going to explore today is what we consider the passive indexes that fit more of the Bogle bill. So no thematics today. We will use them as examples when we're going through what to look out for. 
What we're trying to solve is a common investor problem. You need exposure to a market, and you'd like to gain that exposure through a passive vehicle. We'll also cover how you actually pick an ETF in that second episode that we do. So there's several passive ETFs that cover the market. There's different providers that say they're offering the same exposure. So what kind of process can you go through to properly understand what you're invested in and why? And so there's many places to start, but a good place to start would be with an index. An index is a method to track the performance of a group of assets in a standardized way. Indexes typically measure the performance of a basket of securities intended to replicate a certain area of the market. And each index has a methodology. And what index methodologies are, are basically the same thing as fund mandates. There are a set of instructions that dictate how these indexes are allowed to select and weight the assets that go into it. Index methodologies are basically the operating rules for index funds. They also include instructions for review and maintenance. So when do you buy an asset? When do you sell an asset? What are the triggers? So in this way, they're pretty pivotal to any of the due diligence that you would do. So investors need to understand what the index methodology is, how it defines what is going to be invested in, and the return and the risk profile of the investment. So all of these factors are critical for investors to consider when they're making an investment. Exactly. And I think many investors think that just because they are investing in a passive investment, there's no due diligence required because that's just the market and they're not taking a particular stand. For example, with a market cap weighted index, that means you are making a stand that bigger companies will do better. So let's go through the process first of deconstructing an ETF and its methodology. Then we can go through a few factors that make passive index ETFs attractive. So things to look out for when you're choosing an ETF. And we'll make sure as we go through this, we'll give you some signposts or green flags to add some practicality to it. So as you're researching, you can look for certain metrics. All right. So let's start with a little background about what our analysts do, because their analysis is incredibly in-depth. And I think it provides a bit of insight into how important these index methodologies are to the prospective success of an index ETF. We've gone through the process that our analysts go through before, but they conduct their research based on pillars. People, parent, process, and price. Lots of Ps. So when we're rating ETFs, process has a pretty outsized influence on our calculations. We definitely do take into consideration how experienced the management team is, how well-resourced they are, and how aligned the company is in terms of investor best interests. But process receives about an 80% weight on our ratings because of how much influence it has on the outcome of the investment. And the process is a little bit different for index funds versus an actively managed fund, where we look at how the manager selects the securities that go into the fund. For a passive fund, the manager is not selecting what goes into the fund because they're just following an index. So we'll explore how we evaluate that process. And there's a piece that one of our directors at Morningstar, Ben Johnson, wrote about exploring the DNA of index investments. And he put it quite well. He says that in terms of our ratings, nurture definitely comes second to nature when we're talking about index portfolios. Yeah, and in this article, he comes up with the circle of index construction, and it is a process that goes through the continuing life cycle of an index. Indexes are supposed to mimic certain markets, and markets are ever-evolving and changing, so indexes might be ever, must be ever-evolving too. So the first part of this cycle is universe, and this part of the cycle refers to the universe of stocks that the index is drawing the underlying investments from. The scope of the selection obviously changes from index to index, but think of the universe as a supermarket where you're able to go and pick anything you like within that supermarket. And there are different sizes and types of supermarkets. So there's little bodegas and then there's Costco. And that would be the entire investable market capitalization of Australia or the US. 
And then there's these narrowly focused indexes specifically on corporate bonds or crypto or microcap stocks listed on the NASDAQ Vilnius. And that is the only stock exchange in Lithuania, Shani. <laughs> so what do you think about that? Yeah. Do, do you reckon we have some investing compass listeners in Lithuania? We can look. Actually, <laughs> we switched podcast platforms and now we have this map and it mm -hmm. colors in the map where people have listened. Nothing in Sri Lanka yet. Nothing in Sri Lanka. So <laughs> Mark's very upset. Your mother's friends, the Chandi army, has given up on you. So I don't know I'll what's get happening. Her on it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what these universes represent is the opportunity set, right? And the more diverse the opportunity set, the more directions in which the indexes can move. The narrower the opportunity set, the narrower the options for the index to move. Exactly right, Mark. Indexes differ from each other in breadth, depth, and diversity of the selection universes, and this has important implications for how the indexes are made up. And this should seem hopefully pretty obvious, right? Bigger universe, bigger opportunity set. When we are practically looking at indexes, it becomes a common sense screener. All right, so let's go through a quick example here. As we said earlier, the first index tracked the S&P 500. That is the 500 biggest companies in the US, no other criteria, just the 500 biggest companies that trade in US markets. We also have the NASDAQ 100, which is the 100 largest non-financial companies that trade on the NASDAQ exchange. The NASDAQ is popular with technology companies, and so approximately half the index is in the tech sector, with another 20% in communications, which means many people can, which many people consider as tech. The big opportunity set, of course, is the S&P 500, and if we look at the NASDAQ, it represents a small opportunity set. Because of this, investing in the narrow opportunity set means that it can deviate more significantly from the overall market. And we saw this during the dot-com bear market, where it took the S&P 500 eight years to recover back to its high, and nearly 15 years for the NASDAQ to recover. And this is an important point that we covered in our episode, which I would say is my favorite episode, Shani. Four words every investor should know. So the market as a whole has done well over time. But slices of the market and individual shares have done terribly and destroyed a lot of investor wealth. So the majority of time this has happened when these slices of the market or the individual shares become incredibly overhyped and incredibly overvalued. We've seen this again and again. This is why we hate passive thematic ETFs. And I'm putting that passive in quotes because they are not passive. And the interesting thing is that investors that tout the benefits of passive investing and talk about how well the overall market has done over time, then they talk about how they've invested in these thematic ETFs. And a thematic ETF, once again, is not passive investing. It is taking a concentrated bet on a small sliver of the market that is often very expensive and overhyped, hence the thematic ETF being created in the first place. I thought you said no rants, Mark. One rant. Yeah. It's one rant, okay? And yeah. it's only a rant because I don't want people to make the same mistake that literally has occurred again and again throughout history. All right. So a well-meaning rant. Something like that. Mm. Okay. So we'll go through the process on a few ETFs, common broader indexes and specialty or indexes with narrow universes to show how this fits into the process. The next part of the index construction circle is selection. And selection is how an index selects the constituents. Is it broad-based market cap weighted like the Russell 3000? Is it an index where a team are actively selecting the investments? A good example of this is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. This is an index of 30 stocks listed in the US and it's been around for around 130 years. It only consists of large companies and the components are selected by a committee based on how prominent or influential the companies are. 
Yeah, and the, the Dow Jones is definitely a bit of a controversial index because it isn't considered a proper representation of any market. And there's not really that much rhyme or reason as to why certain companies are chosen to be part of the index. And so when I first started my commerce degree, I was doing research and I found this this page called Goldman Sachs Elevator. It was a Twitter account where a man who used to work at Goldman Sachs would post funny things that he heard um, around the office when he worked there. And if the name wasn't self-explanatory. Um, and one of the things that he posted that I thought was quite funny and stuck with me was that 33% of the Dow Jones industrial average is five stocks. Gauging the economy on that is like putting the back of your hand on your forehead as a health exam. Yeah. And should, should I tell the story about how you made me go to a health exam and how it's ruined my life? <laughs> yeah. That I, I guess you were worried because I wasn't sleeping. So you told me I had to go see the doctor. Yes. And then he tested my cholesterol and said that it was elevated. Mm-hmm. And now I can't eat cheese. So you have ruined my life. Mark has a lot of resentment for me for this. <laughs> well, I'm a pretty big fan of cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Only um, for a couple months, though. Exactly. Yeah. You'll then I'll either die <laughs> or, or my cholesterol will be lower. Yeah. Um, so we'll just see what happens. So um, unlike the Dow Jones, when you have those indexes like the Russell 3000, broad indexes, the only real change that they might make is weeding out small stocks that may have a negligible holding or might be costly to include in the index due to trading costs. But there are definitely pickier indexes, usually with constituents of the indexes being picked by committee, exactly like the Dow Jones. And it's so important to understand the criteria that indexes use to decide what they do and don't invest in. Yeah, no, that's right, Chani, because having a deep understanding of what you've invested in is obviously something that we're strong advocates for here at Morningstar. And selection is the step that covers, as an investor, whether the investment is compatible with your portfolio and what you're trying to achieve. So we speak a lot, and we have spoken a lot, about the investment policy statement as part of this process of constructing a portfolio and selecting investments. And basically what the investment policy statement is, is a document that outlines what and why you would buy or sell an asset in your portfolio. So it gives you structure. And with selection, you're marrying up your IPS with an investment. So you're understanding whether it passes your selection criteria for your portfolio. And we'll mention this a few times across our two-parter, but the line has become so blurred between what a passive investment and what an active investment is. As you go through your investment selection process, keep this in mind. Am I investing in a broad fund that gives me exposure to the market that I need? Or am I taking an active bet on one particular slice of the market, like a passive healthcare ETF? or a tech ETF where you've taken an active bet on one sector, or even index ETFs that are highly concentrated like the tech-heavy NASDAQ, where you're inadvertently doing the same thing. Okay, so let's move on to the third factor, which is weighting. And this is what happens after the selection process, and it's a process of deciding how much of each asset is included in the index. There are a few ways that weight can be assigned. Common ones are market cap weighted and equal cap equal weighted. Okay. So do you want to give a little bit? Because I'm losing my voice. So why don't yeah. you give a little bit of a description? <laughs> Should I just do the rest of the thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Why not? <laughs> All right. So um, market cap weighted means that the assets in the index are weighted based on the size of their total market capitalization. So when we look at the ASX 200, a market cap weighted version of that index would have CBA, the largest share, make up the largest part of the index. BHP would be the second largest, CSL the third, and so on. When we look at equal weighted, the index is just split evenly across the 200 stocks that are included in the index. Yeah, and there's there's different variations of weighting. So obviously, as you mentioned, market cap is definitely the most popular. There's also weighting according to fundamentals, and that's just exposure to particular factors. 
And these weightings are important to consider because they influence the risk and return profile of the index, which of course in turn influences the risk and return profile of your portfolio. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a share-side investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of ShareSite's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today. All right, so let's go through a quick example of how weightings can actually change the risk and return. And a nice and easy way to demonstrate this is the S&P 500. If you wanted to make an investment in the S&P 500, so the 500 largest stocks by market capitalization in the US, you could look at the iShares S&P 500 ETF with the ticker IVV. 29% of the index is in the top 10 holdings, 7% of the index is in one holding, Apple, 6% in another, Microsoft, just a lot of concentration in tech, over a quarter of the index. We then have an index that's invested in exactly the same stocks, but it's equally weighted meaning that each of the 500 constituents of the index have the same weighting. This ETF is a BetaShares S&P 500 equal weight ETF with the ticker QUS. The makeup of the portfolio is very different. We're seeing a 14% holding in tech, a much higher holding in industrials, and only 4% of the index is in the top 10 holdings. And there are a few situations in which you would choose one or the other. If we look to the recent past, the S&P 500 market cap weighted index has produced outsized returns compared to the equal weight. We see the equal weight index lagging by almost 5% compared to the market cap weighted index. This also means that as we stand now, many of the larger names that we see, these bloated holdings in the index, they're at stretched valuations. That means that there is little room for capital growth, but also means that there's a higher downside risk as the higher the valuation, the further there is to fall. So if you're wary of overexposure to the tech sector, weighting might be a consideration. If you're cautious of concentration risk, weighting might also be a consideration. Looking at index weightings and ensuring that the mandate is in line with your risk and return profile is pretty important in the process of index selection. Let's move on from here to the penultimate consideration, which is constraints. All right. So constraints are artificial barriers or rules that managers put in place to limit the risk in a portfolio or index. And constraints can limit concentration. They can help the index represent their selection universe a little better. They can limit exposure. They can limit risk. Basically, what these constraints do is they act as a voice of reason when a lot of these choices for passive funds are automated. You're picking based on certain characteristics, and sometimes there just has to be a check to make sure that the investment still makes sense. That's right, Mark. And a common constraint that you can find with passive investments can be caps or maximum holding amounts per stock. They can be a lot more complex than that, taking into consideration factors, factor exposures or exposure to a sector. Yeah. And it is, it is important to note that you know constraints, once again, because they are something that are actively added to these things, mm. means these things aren't passively managed, right? Exactly. So you know, if you look at a market cap weighted index, in theory, Apple could grow to 99% of the S&P 500. And that is the index, right? It's just letting the market do what the market's going to do. So 
why don't we use an example of constraints and we'll pick a thematic ETF, Shani. Mm -hmm. Is that exciting? So we'll do <laughs> the BetaShares Global Robotics and Artificial Intelligence ETF. So basically the Will Robots Take Over the World ETF. And what that is trying to track is the performance of, speaking of made-up indexes, the Index Global <laughs> Robotics and Artificial Intelligence Thematic Index. And there's several constraints that restrict the type of holdings they have. This includes market cap. So companies must have a minimum market cap of $100 million USD. And they must also have a minimum average daily turnover for the last six months of $2 million US or more. The security must be listed in a developed market as defined by index, the index provider. And the security must have traded on at least the last 90% of eligible trading days in the last six months. And this index is capped at 100 companies. Yeah. So a few constraints. And, you know, the fund company would obviously argue or the index company that they put these in to improve the quality of the constituents in the index. But remember, this is artificial that they've created this. Mm. So let's move on to the last factor, and that's rebalancing. And rebalancing is a factor that needs to be paid attention to for a number of reasons. One being that rebalancing actively changes the allocations that are in the fund, selling and buying assets, and you should be aware of the frequency and the types of changes that are being made. But also because this action triggers tax consequences in almost all circumstances, and tax is part and parcel of investing and making money, but mitigating it pr protects the total performance of your portfolio. Yeah, and this is definitely a part of investing in some index funds. So market cap weighted index funds do not rebalance, right? So as a company gets bigger, it makes up more of the index. But in some of these other indexes, you do have this automatic rebalancing. So while there's no active stock picking, there is buying and selling depending on the type of index that, of course, you're invested in. So an equal weighted index that we mentioned before would need to be rebalanced at intervals to make sure that it remained equal weighted. Yeah, Mark, the market obviously moves up and down and individual stock prices move up and down. And this means that they must be bought, uh, brought back to square. But there are other reasons why rebalancing occurs. Rebalancing can occur in an index fund if there's corporate actions. It can occur when there's IPOs and new stocks are added to the universe. They need to be included in the index. For fixed income, new bonds may be issued. There are a variety of reasons, but ensure that if you are investing in a passive fund, you're aware if there's rebalancing because depending on the reason and the frequency, this could have a noticeable impact on your tax liabilities and total investment returns. Yeah, no, it's a really good point, Shani. So that connection of performance and rebalancing is, you know, at least theoretically, something that should add to performance as you're selling the stocks that have appreciated and investing more in the ones that have decreased in value. And selling out of overvalued assets and into undervalued is good. It's good forced behavior. That's why we rebalance in our own portfolios. But I think we should look at an example. And once again, we will uh, we'll use a thematic example. <laughs> um, so we will use the ETFS FANG plus ETF with the ticker code FANG. So it focuses on the exposure to the technology sector. It tracks the performance of the NYSE FANG index, once again made up, <laughs> by investing in the shares at an equal weight. So as markets move, these proportions change and must be rebalanced, which happens on a quarterly basis. And FANG came under fire at tax time last year, where many investors who did not know the fund rebalanced or understood the impact got a pretty hefty tax bill. 
And we can see how this has happened because the ETF targets an equal weighting of each stock. And as such, the ETF needs to rebalance the fund by selling down positions that have done well during that period. And when you sell positions that have done well, you incur capital gains. These capital gains are passed on to investors through the distribution that you receive. Yeah, so that distribution last year was $2.14 per unit. And just for context, the year before, it was $0.12. Cents. So as we know, the tech sector did incredibly well up until the last few months, and the fund had to bring those equal weightings back into place by selling down due to this rebalancing policy. So a great example of why paying attention to rebalancing is important. All right, so we finished the first episode. Mm-hmm. I barely finished it. <laughs> you poor thing. You sound like, like you're struggling. <laughs> losing my voice. Well, I did a webinar right before this. But uh, but hopefully we've yeah gone through why it's important to understand the bones of an index before investing in it. And in the next episode, which we will record in a second and that you can listen to right now because we're going to release both of them, we'll go through picking out passive ETFs. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.